The world is longing for authentic leaders. Higher education is in need of transformation to meet the challenges of a 21st century global economy. Students are searching for hope and dreams they can passionately pursue. Young people want to believe they can make a difference. Utah Valley University may have discovered answers to all these questions in a single, passionately energized yet unlikely source, President Tuminez. We will explore her extraordinary journey on the road less traveled on this episode of Therefore What? Therefore What is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What. President Tuminez, thank you so much for joining us on Therefore What this week. I am delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover, so we're going we're gonna to dive right into it. Uh, the first thing I want to, to address, you, you've had such diverse experience over your career, and yet it really started uh, really simply. You had a, a couple of people who really chose to make a difference, and, and we often question that in the world is, can I really make a difference? Is what I'm doing today uh, really going to impact anybody? Uh, but you had a chance to visit with two nuns uh, in the fall of this last year yes, that did make that kind of difference for you. Tell us about that. Yes. So so those nuns, they come from an order called the Daughters of Charity. They were actually founded in France. And uh, about 100 years ago, this order started a school in the Philippines. And I was then living in the slums of the city of Iloilo in the, in the Philippines. I had um, five siblings at the time, and we were really too poor to afford a good school. But the nuns uh, would go around every so often to do what what they call slumming. They bring you clothes and canned goods, and they also teach catechism. And they found me and my siblings. And basically, the, the wonderful outcome of that meeting was that they invited us to attend their school for free. And I had a chance to visit them. It was last June with a UVU team with me. And, um, you know, filmed them. And, and one of these nuns, Sister Elvira Correa, who at the time was probably in her young 20s, she really changed the entire trajectory of my life and the lives of my siblings, too. Yeah. So so what did you learn from those nuns? Is that you obviously got into education and something, something sparked. <laughs> <laughs> I learned many things from the nuns. So it was a Catholic convent school. It was very strict. The first thing I learned from them was the reality of heaven and hell. And if you can imagine, in those days, um, our our religion class, Christian Living, uh, began with big pictures, beautiful, glossy pictures. And I had nothing like that in my home. I had no radio, no television. But there were these big, glossy pictures at school. And there was always hell and heaven. And in hell, you're the devil with a pitchfork, you know, poking people as they were burning in hellfire. So actually, that led me to think early on about the definition of what's good Mm. and what's bad. And even though that's simplistic and not so nuanced, I really started to think about what I wanted to do with life and what choices I was making. Second, they were strict disciplinarians. So in terms of education and teaching, um, I had to speak English, even though I didn't know English. And so I just had to learn really, really fast. And then the third thing, there was a nun whose name was Sister Susana Palses. She later actually left the order to get married. and But but I had a class with her, and one day she said to me, you know, um, Astrid, you have to see 
God in every person. And I think I was 10 years old or younger, and that just had such a powerful effect on me that every human being who stood in front of me um, was someone who had God in them. And therefore, I had to see that potential. Therefore, I had to treat them as if, you know, God himself were there standing in front of me. So I'm sure she didn't even really realize that that particular interaction would have a know, such an effect on me, but it did. Yeah, wow. I, we're going to come back to that as we talk okay. about some of the students you see every day down at UVU. But I want to continue on this education uh, line first, uh, because clearly something sparked in terms of reading and learning, yes. uh, and it set you on a very different course than uh, than you were on to begin with. So um, when I was invited to the school, they had something called the free department. So this is where all the poor kids went. It wasn't the school proper. And I had a teacher, Ms. Duriha, who was very, very strict. And I was just a visitor. I was illiterate, so they didn't give me the status of uh, first grader. I was called a visitor. And they seated the, the children by um, smartness. The smartest girl would be in the first seat, first row. And there were six rows. And I was the sixth girl, sixth row. And um, I joke about, you know, the shaming method in Asia, which can be very effective. Yes. So I obviously uh, at first felt very ashamed, but I also was just really excited. I didn't understand a lot of what was going on. I thought that a zero was a hundred. So my first quizzes that were all zero, I thought they were a hundred and I would run home to my hut and (laughs) tell my father, look at this great grade and it was a terrible grade. But it awakened in me because I I learned to read very quickly. Uh, I didn't know how to spell my name when I started. I learned to read very, very quickly. And then you just couldn't stop me from reading everything I could lay my hands on. And then I got competitive because I I realized... I'm I'm shocked by that, actually. (laughs) I realized for the first time in my life that I was good at something. Yeah. And and for a f- and then I turned 6 uh, I turned 6 2 months into s- the school year and realized this thing that I could compete and and so I eyed that girl in the first seat first <laughs> row. <laughs> And I don't know how many months it took. I can't remember, but I I displaced her. Wow. And then I, they, they moved me. Uh, I jumped a grade. I went straight to second grade from being a visitor to second grade. So it was the beginning of this journey of, yes, I'm good at something, and and I can just run with it. It was a great feeling. Yeah, so so important to, to recognize those feelings when you when you know you're yeah. you're on a path that you can actually do something. So let's let's follow that path. Let's accelerate down. You uh, you went to Brigham Young University, yes, uh, which then took you to Harvard and to, to MIT. MIT. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, so at first I actually went to the University of the Philippines. I was a 15-year-old freshman, and um, when I graduated high school, I, I took a test and applied for government scholarship. So I became what was called a University of the Philippines, one of the very top schools in the country. I became a UP government scholar, and it was the first time in my life I had cash. Mm. Um, so they paid my tuition, plus they gave me cash, and it was, again, very exciting. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I started in chemical engineering, but realized I wasn't fast as fast as the others at mathematics. And so I went into pre-med and um, I dissected the little animals without a problem. And then we had to dissect a cat. And, and the and the professor said we had to find our own cat, and I just said no, you know, <laughs> I, I draw the line there, and then I realized that's not what I wanted to do. Then I got into languages and political science, and then by the time that I uh, got accepted to BYU and was able to get my visa to come to the United States, I, I already knew that I wanted to study international politics. I was very concerned about issues of war and peace and the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union at that time, and nuclear weapons. So. 
And then I had a mentor at BYU, a wonderful mentor, Professor Gary Browning, yeah. who again took a big risk in me. I applied to be his secretary, and I flunked the secretarial test. <laughs> I couldn't write a proper letter, dear so-and-so. I didn't know where the margins were, were and how many spaces between dear so-and-so and the beginning of the letter. But he didn't give up on me. He made me take a spelling test. And all of those years of reading books in the Philippines made me ace the spelling test. So he gave me that job. I learned to speak Russian fluently. He was my Russian professor. He wrote me a wonderful letter of recommendation. He had done his own PhD at Harvard. I think that helped in a major way. So I got into Harvard and then uh, MIT. And of course, the, the years in Cambridge, Massachusetts were amazing years for me in terms of the exposure to this, the, the world writ large. Yeah. When I landed in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, having lived in Provo for three and a half years, I was shocked that that was also the United States. <laughs> was I that said, a bigger shock it, than coming from, it, <laughs> from it, the it Philippines? Was, <laughs> I think it was an even bigger shock. I thought, is, this is also the United States because everybody was different. Yeah. And the universities were so different, and people kind of rolled out of bed in sweatpants. Whereas at BYU, we, we combed our hair, you know? <laughs> We actually combed our hair and, like, ironed our clothes. And anyway, so, so that journey of education was um, just something that, that uh, a huge privilege for me, yeah. an amazing time in my life. Yeah. So let's drill down on the, on the Russia connection here. That sounds, that sounds almost ominous, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was not a KGB agent. You were, okay, I just wanted to make sure. That was my first question. Was, <laughs> no KGB agents. That's good. Yeah. Uh, but you had this you did have this passion ar- around yes. war and peace and poverty yes. uh, and good public policy in terms yes. of how that plays out uh, so describe some of the experiences you had there and again going back to what you learned uh, from the nuns of seeing of seeing God in everyone how did yeah. that play in your Russian experience well what what happened was you know I became a student of the Cold War and because I worked for Professor Browning he was someone who I think from a moral and ethical perspective really opposed the nuclear arms mm-hmm. race. And so I saw that since he was my mentor, I started studying those issues myself. And I also came to the conclusion that it was unacceptable for these two, you know, blocks of countries to have, I think at the time, enough nuclear weapons to blow up the earth six times over. And I was reading a lot of books about this. Um, and, and I thought, you know, this question of, of war and peace and how, how do we do better? So, um, and as you said, my own, you know, my Catholic upbringing and then later my, my Latter-day Saint upbringing. I, I'm a deeply religious person. Yeah. I have always been ever since I was a child. Um, and, and so all of that made me think about, you know, what's really happening here? And can we have a more rational approach to this? Can there be a middle ground? Mm-hmm. Um, I read I read the poets, I read the physicists, I read the political scientists. And, and what I was persuaded of was, was the fact that, um, you know, we lose altogether or, or we can win if we saw in one another the, the, the same human, you know, um, dreams and the same human foibles too, yeah. the same human weaknesses. And then I went to the Soviet Union in 1985, uh, you know, got to know friends. They really debated politics a lot. But at the same time, that journey of finding the pragmatic middle ground when you saw how much they loved of their families mm-hmm. and how much they love their country and how much they loved some of their ideology because, you know, they didn't have a chance maybe to read other things. And so for me, that was just, um, it, it kind of uh, awoke a commitment in me that, that I need to spend my life 
working to do good because there's so many opportunities to do good. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to drill down for a second on, uh, we were talking about this before we we started the podcast, uh, and that is that you were able to see what happens when you actually do have a, a real clear mission and set of objectives and what that does from a leadership standpoint. So first okay. describe that in terms of your experience in Russia and the United States role as kind of a leader during that era, and then we'll, we'll come back and apply it to some higher in, in a second. Okay, okay. So, so leadership. So let me step back a little bit. When I was about 19 at Brigham Young University, 18 or 19, I arrived uh, around that age. I actually took a three by five index card and I don't know what the impetus was, but I was just sitting there at my desk at the Russian house and I asked myself, you know, what, what is the purpose of my life? I, maybe it was elicited by the fact that I'd read Tolstoy, you know, Chem Yudi Jivui, what do people live for? Uh, a little novella. And I, I just, I was asking myself, what is my own purpose in life? And on, on that index card, I still have it somewhere if I dig through my boxes. <laughs> I put down three things. The first one was to be happy. I thought it's really important. I had such a difficult childhood, yeah. and I saw a lot of violence, a lot of suffering. Um, I had a lot of indignity because I was poor, and a lot of humiliation. I suffered through mm. a lot of because because of poverty. And so, to be happy was one thing that was really important to me. And the second thing I wrote was to be useful. You know, what do I do with my time? What do I do with my talent? What do I do with um, whatever I have? And then the third thing that I wrote was to be charitable. And it was funny because it's not as if I sat for days thinking about it. It was almost in the blink of an eye. At that age, I said, these are the three things that I wanted to be. So when I look back now uh, my in my journey of leadership, I think those three things are pretty much informed yeah. uh, everything I've done. So, you know, um, my big chunk of leadership opportunity was the job that Harvard University gave me mm -hmm. in what was then the Soviet Union and later post-Soviet Russia to be the director of the Moscow office of what was called the Harvard Project on Strengthening Democratic Institutions. And we were there to bring sort of global concepts, American concepts, best practices uh, in terms of marketization, democratization, conflict prevention, mm -hmm. how to organize government. And, and uh, you know, I applied those principles to try to be happy, to be useful, to be charitable. And, and it was very humbling because at the, at the end of that experience, I learned that there were no easy answers mm. to deep social and historical yeah. change. And we come with our, with our models that can be quite glib, that are not very compassionate or empathetic about the history of a people and what they've been through. Um, I had the chance to work uh, later when I was at Carnegie Corporation on the conflict with Chechnya, for mm -hmm. example. Um, and so, but, but you know, uh, from, from the Soviet Union, Russia, and then other, other uh, aspects or stages in my leadership journey, I really did try to continue applying those principles that I wanted to be happy, to be useful, and to be charitable. You found uh, you found opportunities to do all of those uh, as you as you pivoted, as you went to Microsoft, and suddenly were back in Asia, uh, yes. leading in, in a lot of different ways. Give us a quick snapshot there. Yes. So um, Microsoft, you know, was interested in me in 2008 when I moved to Singapore. At the time, I had a job offer from Google, and then I met the dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of mm. Public Policy. Uh, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy is the premier school of public policy in, in Asia. And um, I, I, I had these options to, you know, uh, 
either go into technology or help build a school of leadership, really, in public yeah. policy. And I had been a fellow for five years at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at the Harvard Kennedy yeah. School. And I was just really intrigued about building a similar kind of institution in a continent that was growing so fast. It was growing so fast financially and economically, but it had a dark side to it. Yeah. And so the question of leadership was at the core of whether the rise of Asia was going to be a peaceful rise, whether the rise of Asia was going to be a more equitable rise, you know, all of that. And so I actually mm. joined uh, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. But four years later, when I was ready to make the transition to the public sector, I just phoned Microsoft and they were very, they were very <laughs> kind they took, they and took brave. That call. <laughs> yes, yes. They were very kind and very brave. A gentleman named Jeff Bullwinkle, who remembered me from four years earlier, said, you know, we may have something for you. And, and, and I am very grateful for the opportunity they gave me because um, I led a team that was the corporate external and legal affairs team, but I'm not a lawyer. And I think they took a calculated risk in me as a leader. And um, my geography had 15 very, very diverse and very, very interesting countries, ranging from Singapore, which is small in a first world country, yeah. to a country like Bangladesh, which is very wow. big and very poor, yeah. or Indonesia, the largest Muslim majority country in the world. And so I had to take all of that diversity, digest all of that diversity, and find ways to build uh, leaders in technology who would understand how to use technology to empower. You know, the mission of Microsoft was to empower every person in every organization to achieve more. So you're not going to dictate, but you have to ask these governments and the universities we worked with and the nonprofits we worked with what was important to them. Uh, Myanmar was one of my countries, and I spent so much time in Yangon, in Naypyidaw, uh, visited Mandalay several times, and it's these are difficult places. Right, uh, and and again to find the common ground and take a tool like technology, educate them on how they can use it. Don't buy what you don't need, and don't buy just to look fashionable. But ask yourself, what do you need to do with your education system? What did you? What do you need to do with the Minister of Trade to make it work better? And then think about how you deploy technology. So I think, you know, my own, the same leadership principles, you know, you listen, you have to kind of know where people are coming from, see them as they are, mm -hmm. and, and what, what their own strengths and their own opportunities for growth are. I think that's really important. Most people want to succeed, by the way. Yeah. I have never once felt like people are out to fail themselves, you know? <laughs> right. They're not. And, and, <clears throat> and, and it's sort of the, the attitude you take with them and how mm -hmm. you help them see their own opportunities. I think that's really, really important. So so now we take all of that and we bring it back to Utah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. To this wonderful institution called Utah Valley University. Yes. And I can I can already see how you're applying those same leadership principles, though that same view of the the value and dignity and uh, possibility yeah. uh, of all the students there. You're you're really not looking at those students as as liabilities to be yes. managed. Those are assets to yes. be developed. Absolutely. Um, so so tell us one. Uh, I want to know what what was the moment where you thought, yeah, you, because most people would say if you if you told your Microsoft colleagues or your colleagues in Russia that you're now going to go 
to this place called Utah Valley <laughs> University, I'm sure they'd probably look yes. at you cross-eyed. Uh, but what was that moment for you where, whether it was the kind of a divine discontent or, hey, this is a chance to apply all of this yeah. in a new way, what was that What was that moment where you knew yes. Utah Valley was the, was the place for you? <laughs> so, um, so when my friend, uh, Kent Christensen, who is an adjunct professor of art at UVU, first suggested, I think we were in Bali, he came out to visit and he suggested that I apply for this job, president of UVU. And I said, are you kidding? You know, um, I don't think I fit there and etc. And what happened was, and, and maybe this is a divine intervention, the thought literally would not leave my mind. And I think it was only a day or two before the, the deadline that I submitted my cover letter and my CV. And where was that aha moment for me? Because there was an aha moment. It was one of those evenings I traveled a lot for the job, you know, 50, 60% of the time. And, you know, I get a lot of work done at night in my hotel room. And I just thought, let me just uh, Bing. I use Bing as my search engine. <laughs> let me just Bing Utah Valley University because I was just being nagged by my mind about this. And and I remembered it from the 80s as, you know, uh, UVCC and UVSC. And it, it, it really, I wasn't really that interested in it. And then so I started looking at the transformation of this university. And I learned that it was, you know, open enrollment. And you had this community college and the full university all in one place. They had an automotive department. I just got super excited. I'm like... I was like, I want to learn automotive. You know, it's, 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 uh, that would be the, if I became president, I said to myself, that would be the first place that I visit. And then the other thing that struck a chord with me was that the pillar under, uh, President Matthew Holland, one of the pillars was inclusion and diversity. And up to that point in time, having lived and worked in five countries, Mm -hmm. having worked with people from so many different backgrounds, having worked in the peace process in the southern Philippines between the Muslim minority and the government, it all made sense to me at that moment that the one place I could go where everything I've learned up to this point in time would be put to good use was a university like UVU with, with that dual mission, with the incredible makeup of the student body, and it was not going to be an elitist approach to education or yeah. to life. It was an approach that said, we have a place for you. You view as a place for you. And by the way, we'll hold you accountable. <laughs> You're not going to come here. We're not just going to stifle you with love, but we're going to come here and see you as you are, but provide you with some of the tools and the learnings where you know you can make your own yeah. way, right? Yeah. And not be ashamed of where you've been or what's happened to you. And it's it's going to be an amazing journey for you. Just listening to your description of the, the different key moments uh, along your personal journey, uh, you've mentioned several times that there was someone who was willing to take a risk on you, whether yeah. it was the nuns or whether it was a yes. colleague. Uh, and it seems to me that there's sort of that attitude at Utah Valley University of, Come along yes. with us. We'll, we'll we'll take. You may not be. You may not think you're ready. You may not think this is where you belong. Yes. But but come walk with us for a little while and let's let's see where we get. Yes. So um, last Thursday I gave my first state of the university address, and in that address, you know, I I unveiled. But frankly, this was not a secret because during my hundred day listening tour, I'd been talking to groups, large and small, on campus about the values on which we are going to pivot UVU to the future. But I kind of formally uh, unveiled these values, and there are three things that I think are really important, and these values will determine how we think, how we act, and what we say every single day. The first one is exceptional care. So it's, it's, that's been a refrain, a refrain in my life where people have taken exceptional care. So they've taken a risk 
in me. And so exceptional care is the first value. The second one is exceptional accountability. So my second grade teacher, the nuns, Professor Browning, all those people who took a risk uh, in me, the Board of Regents who appointed me and selected me, I now have to be exceptionally accountable. So that's the second value. And the third value is exceptional results. If we begin with care, uh, I said to my community at UVU, if you begin with care, then we know one another and accept one another and can work with one another. And then we can hold one another accountable for our resources, for our time, for the mandates that we have, for the things that are under our control. And then because we care and are accountable, the exceptional results is a value. We will, we will see that and live that. Yeah. And so I really believe that um, given who we are and what we are, we have a singular niche where we can make a difference in the lives of so many people. If you look at our student body, it's interesting. 77% are working students and 38% are first generation. So those two statistics alone tell you we are not your regular first time full-time, four-year, mom and dad pay the tuition, and we're just you know, going to write it out. That's right. <laughs> uh, I've always said, and we've talked about this before, I, I, I love UVU students when I was in D.C. Whenever we had the opportunity to get a, a UVU intern, uh, that was always a, a plus because there was this this grittiness, and whether it was because yeah. they were first generation yeah. or or someone cared for them yes, enough to take a risk on them. Yes. Um, but that really seems to be part of the culture there at UVU. Yes. I, I love that you mentioned the word grit. So, you know, our mascot is the wolverine. And I actually had to look that up because I had never seen a <laughs> wolverine. never seen a wolverine. <laughs> I didn't know what a wolverine was. And it has all these other names like devil bear, carcajo, skunk bear. And then in the Wikipedia entry, it said that this is a pretty vicious animal, actually. <laughs> it can take on prey, you know, larger than itself. And I thought that was probably visionary when they chose this mascot a yeah. long, long time ago when it was a, when you, you was a small technical college. And so the grit, we, we really try to emphasize that because, you, you know, the research on grit by Angela Duckworth, that yeah. that a greater uh, determiner of success is not so much innate talent or IQ, but grit and persistence. Yeah. Okay. As we come down the, the home stretch here, I want to ask you just a, a couple of rapid fire uh, questions. Um, in terms of the the responsibility to, to be that role model, to, to then in turn take chances on others the way people took chances on you, uh, how do you see that, and how are you helping your faculty and the people around the UBU community uh, really embrace that part of the the mission? Yes, so so I think I think um, one of the things that is really critical for me to do is is messaging. I think most of the community know my life story. That seems to resonate with a lot of people because I get emails, notes. I have kisses blown through my glass window <laughs> when people look into my office, and I get it from students. I get it from um, divorced mothers who have returned to school so they can support five children. Um, so the messaging and then and then the story of my life, so that's there. I think now the tough part is in the doing because yeah. at the end of the day, I always say, you know, inspiration, what is that? You know, five, ten percent, ninety percent is a cliche, but it's true, it's perspiration. And then when I look at what we need to do to enhance our completion rates, our retention rates from freshman to sophomore year, when we I know we need to raise a bigger endowment, I know that we need to improve our scheduling, I know that we need to improve improve our pathways from the community college two-year degrees to feed that logically and seamlessly into the bachelor's degree. This is hard, hard work. And I have been messaging that we need to be comfortable in our discomfort. We need to um, say that the way we've always done things may not be the way we're, we're going to keep doing things. We have to, sh- to pivot our culture, build on our strength.
strengths and see the opportunities ahead of us. Um, I think uh, faculty, I'm proud of our faculty. They are so committed to the social justice mission of Utah Valley University. And, and I know that they work hard. Often I hear students tell me that they feel our faculty is not out to fail them, but, but they are out to help them. And that's probably the single largest compliment that could be paid to our professors. At the same time, um, you know, professors are also a tough audience, and, and uh, but I cannot succeed without them. The staff as well, I, I need to uh, make sure that they are not burning out. The students, that they are being accountable for their learning, that uh, they can be persuaded to, you know, move a little faster, work even harder. So it's really now in the doing, and, yeah. and I have been repeating at UVU that this is not my story. We succeed or we fail together. I have never been under any illusion that I've got, you know, something magical. But I will work my heart out. And I think um, I think my people know that, you know. So we'll work together. We'll work yeah. really hard. Fantastic. Well, as we, as we come to a close today, um, we, we talked about everyone knows I have a, a wall of fame. Yes. Uh, and I have uh, autographed baseballs, not only from great athletes, but more importantly from people who's ma- who have made a difference uh, in my life, teachers, bosses, good friends, uh, people I've never met. Uh, I've actually had signed uh, baseballs. Uh, so if you were starting your wall of fame today, give me one or two names of people you would immediately go, I've got to get their signature on a baseball. Okay. Um, I think, I, I think, I think I'd put my mother on there. Uh, she, I was only five when she left. So I didn't know my mom growing up. I didn't meet her again really until I was 14. Mm. She's 85 years old now. She can barely hear. But later as an adult, as I learned about her life and the difficulty she had to overcome, I'm like, where did you get diapers? You know, she had eight children and no medical care. Where'd you get diapers for me in the village? And she talked to me about cutting the, the sackcloth where a cornmeal, American cornmeal came in that sack and washing it 10 times by the river so it would be soft enough after 10 washes to put on my bottom. Okay, so she is definitely going to be in my uh, hall of fame. I think the nun who found my family would be on that hall of fame. Um, um, my father, who passed away in 1992, would be in the Hall of Fame. And an author, uh, I would put Bono in the Hall of Fame. I know I know he's a big rock star, <laughs> has a big ego, but I love I love his lyrics. They're very, yeah. I think he's a spiritual singer. And uh, I have one of my favorite books is called um, Care of the Soul by mm-hmm. Thomas More. I'd probably put him on there. Uh, so that's that's probably that's, a, that's a really good to start. begin with. Yes. <laughs> but we'll fill Thank up your you. wall pretty fast. That's great. <laughs> Therefore, what? So as people have been listening for the last 25 minutes, what's the therefore what? What do you hope people come away from this conversation thinking different or doing different as a result of what we've talked about today? Yes. Um, I say that we live in a world that's changing ever more rapidly, but with technology and because of that, um, things change, but also things don't change. It's still a world of haves and have nots. And to me, the therefore what is always, you know, to ask myself the question, what good can I do so that the greatest number of people with the potential to achieve something and live dignified lives, they can actually uh, get there. What can I do to help? I think that's the therefore what for me. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your passionate pursuit of the road less traveled. Uh, it's a great example to the students and faculty at UVU and for all of us. We we appreciate you not only pursuing that road less traveled, but leaving a trail for the rest of us to follow. <laughs> so thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Boyd. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? 
Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening today. And be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What.